0: Well, we're coming towards the end of our sermon series, which we've been calling The Gospel in Graffiti. And as we look at this passage, you can see what it's all about, because it comes up straight away in chapter 13, verse 1. On that day, a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. This passage is about purity. It's about cleansing from sin not an outward cleansing of um, trying to make yourself look smart or just clean off a bit of dirt, but an inward cleansing, a a spiritual cleansing that brings about a spiritual purity deep on the inside. Now, I'm conscious as I say that and as we look at a passage about that, that actually purity is a bit of a marmite um, virtue. Some people love it, some people hate it. So for some people, when they hear the idea of purity and cleansing, then that's something which they can obviously see as a good thing. Um, That's why, for example, many people um, like to have brides in white on the wedding day, a symbol of purity and cleansing, a bride presented to her husband spotless and clean and pure. But on the other hand, some people find it a bit puritanical maybe, this idea of necessity of purity and cleansing seems a bit restrictive, conservative. Um, What's wrong with a bit of harmless fun? Can't you just relax a little bit? In fact, this last week I was reading an article called How Purity Divides Us, which looked at a study about the way that different values, if you like, shape the kind of moral decisions that we make. Um, So, for example, there's the care harm value, there's the liberty freedom value, there's the equality fairness value, and then there's purity and degradation. And of all of the different five or six values that people make decisions about what is right and wrong, the most divisive by far is purity. Some people love it and think it's vitally important that we seek to live pure lives and seek to be clean and pure people. Others just really struggle with it and find it conservative and constraining, and why would you go on about that just inducing guilt in people? The lead author of the article concluded, we found that the rhetoric related to moral concern for purity, out of all moral values, was the best predictor of distance between people. In other words, emphasize purity, and you're likely to cause divisions. Now, look, if that sounds a little bit abstract, let me bring it right up to date. Over the last week or so, there's been um, a lot of reporting, rightly so, and a lot of discussion around the awful abduction and murder of Sarah Everard. And one of the positive things that's come out of this awful Um, murder is the way that it stimulated a conversation. There's a website out there called Everyone's Invited, and that's become one of the big themes, as particularly women have been invited to share their stories of not feeling safe on the streets, to share their stories of being sexually harassed or being sexually assaulted. And astonishingly, awful statistics have come out, like 98% of women in 18 to 24-year-old bracket report some experience of sexual harassment or sexual assault. Ninety-eight percent. And one of the things that the Everyone Invited conversation is bringing out is the way that pornography has contributed to a culture that objectifies women. And if pornography objectifies women, then that leads to a culture where men think it's okay to harass and to assault women. And murders like the awful murder of Sarah Everard can happen. Now as I say that, one of the things about that is that that evidence that links pornography to objectification of women, to sexual harassment and assault, that evidence has been around for a long time. So why is it taken something like Sarah Everard's tragic death for us to start having a, a society wide conversation about it? Well, I put it to you because traditionally most people who've talked about the evil of pornography has appealed to purity. And for a lot of people, that just feels like you're just trying to constrain my fun, you're trying to induce me to feel guilt, you're trying to be overly restrictive and puritanical. But now that we're starting to see that it's not just a bit of harmless fun, that it leads to the objectification of women and the harm of women, then suddenly, because harm is being talked about rather than just purity, the conversation is rightly starting to be stimulated. Well, look, That's so much as why purity is really important. Let's now get into the passage. And as we do so, whether you long to be pure or whether you long for a society where people can walk the streets at night if they're vulnerable without fear, either way, I want us to see how important the purity that God is going to bring in our hearts is as we look, first of all, at the nature of God's cleansing, and then secondly, we're going to look at Jesus and how he brings about God's cleansing. So let's think, first of all, at the nature of God's cleansing. As we see the nature of God's cleansing in this passage, let's get our bearings a bit in the the book of Zechariah, because we're coming to the end of it. Zechariah, the whole book, has really been about this call from the Lord to return to me. It's written at a time when God's people were returning from the exile, but as they returned to Jerusalem and sought to rebuild the temple, God's question to them was, are you going to do more than just returning to the land? Are you going to return to me? are you going to do more than just seeking to rebuild the temple? Are you going to rebuild your broken relationship with me as you turn back to me? And so those early chapters of Zechariah, the first six chapters, were filled with these glorious eight visions where God promised to deal with both the external problems for God's people at the time and ongoing, and the internal problems Externally, the problems they faced were the nations, these intimidating nations, and the rebuilding project of the temple. Internally, they were having to deal with their sin, which was the very thing that had led them into exile for 70 years. And God promises to help them to deal with the external problems by helping them to rebuild the temple, and he then extends that metaphor of the temple to be a picture of the way that all the nations of the earth will come into a relationship with God. The temple will expand and will encompass the whole earth. So he's dealing with the external problems. But he also promises to deal with the internal problems, the problem of sin, our moral rejection of God, the way that we don't want God in our lives. He promises by the power of the Spirit, Zechariah 4, to cleanse them. He promises to bring purity to their lives. And crucially, as the book moves on, he promises to do all this through this figure, the Messiah, the anointed one, the one that's called in chapter 6, the branch. He says, here is the man whose name is the branch, and he will branch out from this place and build the temple of the Lord. And then in these last chapters, we've seen this phrase come up, and it comes up 18 times, on that day. In other words, when is God going to do this amazing work externally and internally to His people through the Messiah? He's going to do it on that day. And um, do pick up Mark's sermon from last week, where he really helpfully showed us that on that day is not a particular 24-hour period, but is a much wider period from the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ through in this age of the Spirit we're in now as he's building his church until the day when Jesus returns and completes his work. That is the period that is being referred to with on that day. So this chapter brings together a number of those themes, the cleansing of God's people internally, the work doing it through the anointed one, and all about doing it on that day, in this period that we're now in, between the death of Jesus Christ and the second coming of Jesus Christ in the age of the Spirit. And as we think about that, what is the nature of this cleansing that God is doing in His people in this day, on that day? Well, it's a total cleansing, it's a deep cleansing, and it's a transformative cleansing cleansing. Let's look at the, the, deep, the total cleansing first of all. On that day, verse 1, a fountain will be opened up to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. God's people back then were used to ritual cleansing. Before you went into the temple, for example, you had to wash your hands at a basin or a large stone jar. But it was a symbol of the way that, you know, we can't just walk into God's presence with our sin. We need to be purified to be cleansed. But, of course, just washing your hands doesn't do that. Well, here the picture is not of a bit of ceremonial washing, but it's a, a total cleansing. The thing about a fountain is that it just goes on and on and on. It, it never runs dry because it recycles the water, right? and it just washes cleanliness over you. So rather than it being just washing the hands, the whole body is washed here by this fountain. Rather than it just being a little bit of water, it's a gushing torrent of water. It's a picture of extravagance, total cleansing. In other words, this is a picture of the total cleansing that God offers to all who trust in Jesus Christ. Now just pause for a moment and think about that. I mean, we all have a sense, don't we, that there are things in our past that we'd rather weren't there. We all sometimes talk about stains on our character, and maybe, maybe we're non-specific and general about that, but we're, we're aware that we have them. We all, when we walk into a social situation, try to project a kind of personality that's not really exactly accurate to who we are, because we're worried that if we showed exactly who we are, you know, kind of warts and all, stains and all, that if you really saw me, you might not like what you see. And so we put on a mask and we we put a lot of effort into making sure that the mask doesn't slip. And actually, the more we fear you seeing me, the real me, the, the thicker the mask gets, right, the bigger the projection, the bigger the filter. But what would it be like if rather than all that social effort, all the time to try to put yourself out there as someone you're not really like, what if you could just be fully authentic, fully vulnerable? What if the things and the stains on your character, the things you're ashamed of, had been cleansed so that you could say, here I am, no mask. This is what I'm like. No projection, no filters. And you could be confident in that because you knew that God accepted you and had cleansed you, and therefore other people would see who you are and couldn't reject you for that. Or even if they did reject you, it wouldn't hurt so much. That's the total cleansing that is being talked about here. It's something we long for, it's something we put so much effort in seeking to achieve, but only God can bring it about. A total cleansing. Secondly, there's a deep cleansing, verse two. "On that day I will banish the names of the idols from the land, and they will be remembered no more," declares the Lord Almighty." The thing about God's cleansing is it's not just a surface level. It goes deep, right to the heart. The reason that idols are being talked about here is that idol worship is not just a, a matter of outward behavior, but idol worship is, is about the deep loves, the deep aspirations, the deep longings of the human heart. Worship literally means, in the old English, worthship that which we ascribe ultimate value, ultimate worth to. It's the very core of our being, the things which say, I, I must have that, I, I long to have that, I, I yearn to have that those are the idols. And when we put anything in the place of God as that central longing in our life, then we are committing idolatry. And God says here that he's going to cleanse that out from us. Perhaps you care too much about material possessions as you you long for them. Maybe you have them, maybe you don't. You can still long for them, right? And so that means that you have a heart that is not generous-spirited, And so you really struggle to give. Maybe you don't give at all. Maybe you think, why would I give? I mean, I haven't got enough money to give, right? It's mine. Perhaps you care too much about how people see you. And so in any social situation, you want to be the one who's kind of in control and looks good. And so anyone criticizes you or raises any concern with you or or asks you to apologize, you get very defensive and very brittle and push back very strongly because of the idol of an excessive concern of what people think about you. Perhaps you care too much and you place ultimate worth in being in control, and so in all your relationships you feel far too out of control, so that drives you to the use of pornography where you're in control. You sit at the computer. You choose the image that you view. You're in control, the idol of control driving you to sexual gratification and pornography. Whatever it is, God is saying that to be cleansed, He's got to go deep. He's got to go into our hearts. He has to deal with the deep orientations of our hearts, the false longings that replace the deep love for God that should be there. And He will do that. He will cleanse it completely. He'll cleanse the totality of sin from His people, and He'll cleanse deeply the sin from His people as He deals with idols. And that leads to this wonderful picture of transformation from verse 2 onwards, we get this picture of transformation in the life of God's people. And it's a little bit strange maybe to us because he seems to be dealing with um, prophecies. So end of verse 2, I will remove both the prophets and the spirit of impurity from the land. And if anyone still prophesies, their father and mother to whom they were born will say to them, you must die because you've told lies in the Lord's name. Then their own parents will stab the one who prophesies. Now, you look at that and you're thinking, well, this all just seems very excessive and what on earth is going on? We need to understand the context that in the day that was being written about, the false prophets were the one who were leading the people astray to worship idols. And that was why the people had gone off into exile, because they had been led astray from God. They had scorned God and His love for them, and instead they'd followed these false idols. But it was the false prophets who were preaching lies and who were enticing God's people away. And so the picture here is of such a deep work going on in God's people that they completely now shun the false prophets, that even the closest family relationship, a parent for a son or daughter who is a false prophet, they will cast them out because they love God now. They put the love of God at the center. And so it leads to a total social transformation when the prophets have no place in a society anymore um, if they're breathing lies where false prophets are no longer listened to because the whole of society is oriented towards God, this total social transformation. And again, this is not some puritanicalism, but this is saying that the orientation of our heart and the things we worship and the sin that goes in our heart matters in the wider society, that if you want a society that is just and fair, where the vulnerable are prioritized, where generosity is trumpeted and celebrated, then idols are going to have to be dealt with, and that will lead to the transformation of society. So as God deals with the idol of materialism, he unlocks a heart to no longer be tethered to stuff and material things and money, and instead to be able to be generous towards others, and charitable giving goes up, which helps the vulnerable in society, which leads to a better and more fair and more just society as God cleanses out the idol of power from his people. So you have a community where people aren't seeking to strive to be in control over one another, always doing one-upmanship, but instead love and serve one another. And that leads to a society that functions well, where people keep short accounts and can say sorry to one another. As the Spirit works to purify from his people, The idol of sexual gratification may be motivated by control, then people will be less likely to turn to pornography. And because they don't turn to pornography, they will not objectify the other person, member of the opposite sex. And as they don't objectify the the member of the opposite sex, then they won't harass them and think that's acceptable behavior, because their mind and their hearts won't have been distorted by pornography. And that leads to a society where women can walk the streets at night and not fear if a person is following them ten feet behind that something's going to happen to them. You see how God's cleansing is not just a matter of purity only. It matters for justice. It matters for a caring society where people aren't harmed. It matters for liberty and equality. That is the picture of the total cleansing that God is bringing about. In the story of Beauty and the Beast, um, we often forget um, that the story starts not with a beast, or at least not outwardly. The story starts with a proud and cruel prince, one who's in control, one who loves power and loves the palace and loves all his wealth. And one day he comes across a little old lady, he doesn't know that she's an enchantress, and he's cruel and he's mean to her. And so she casts a spell on him. The spell is that his outward appearance would match the ugliness, the beastliness, the monstrous nature of his heart, and so he becomes the beast. And she says, you will stay as the beast until your internal life, the monstrosity of it, the beastliness of it, is cleansed, and only then will you become a man again. And the story is, of course, of how love does that. Well, this is something of what God is talking about here, if we want a fair society, if we want to not be monstrous and beastly to one another, to put it technically, it's got to come from the heart, and that is only something that God can do with the transformation that he brings about. Well, secondly, and maybe a bit more briefly, how does this come about? How does this come about in verses 7 to 9? Two key parts this. First of all, the shepherd is struck, and secondly, the people are refined the shepherd is struck. Verse 7, awake sword against my shepherd, against the man who is close to me, declares the Lord Almighty. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered and I will turn my hand against the little ones. Now, you can see by, so if you're reading this in the NIV, this is formatted in a way that shows that it's a kind of poem or a song, but it, it does seem to come a little bit out of the blue. On one moment we're talking about fountains and cleansing And then the kind of metaphor switch completely, and we're talking about a shepherd, and this shepherd is, in a rather perplexing way, being struck, and the sheep are being scattered. What is going on? Well, it's not a a complete, you know, kind of link or leap in the dart. It's not a non sequitur. Rather, if you remember, you know, just a couple of weeks back, we were were looking at the way that these false shepherds that were leading God's people astray, that were actually feeding on the sheep rather than serving and caring for the sheep, were going to have to be dealt with. In other words, in order for God to deal with the internal life of His people, He needs to deal with sin in the people, but also the temptation to sin, which was the false teaching of these false shepherds. And what is noticeable in the Old Testament is that God takes that kind of leading of His people astray by false shepherds so seriously that in Deuteronomy chapter 13, anyone who prophesies things in the name of the Lord but is actually not being a true prophet is being a false prophet, leading God's people away. The penalty for that is death, death by stoning, being struck down by stones. But notice here, as God seeks to deal with the false shepherds, that the false shepherds aren't struck down. Who is struck down? A wake sword against my shepherd, against the man who is close to me, declares the Lord mighty. Strike that shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered." In other words, though the false prophets deserve to be struck down, the good shepherd is the one who is struck down. That is how God deals with sin in his people's life. And that's why in the night before he died, Jesus, as he spent some time with his disciples, quoted directly from Zechariah, and we had it in our reading, from Mark chapter 14, he says, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Because he knew that this was a prophecy about himself. There in verse 7, it says, Awake sword against my shepherd, against the man who is close to me. The Hebrew is a very particular phrase. It literally means the one who is by my side in the closest possible relationship. And in John's gospel, we get this phrase, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in the closest relationship with god the father has made him known john 1 verse 18 well here the wonder is that the son is struck so that we might be made clean that might be why john at the end of his gospel records the peculiar detail that when jesus died on the cross the roman centurion to make sure that he was dead was to ordered to thrust a spear into his side and when he thrust the spear into jesus's side john recalls in john chapter 19 that Both blood and water flowed from his side. Now, it's a bit gruesome, but I'm married to a doctor, so sometimes we just have to be used to the gruesome details around the dinner table. But because Jesus already died, the the blood platelets and the fluid that carried them had separated, like sediment sinks to the bottom of water. And so they separated, and so as his side was pierced, that fluid flowed out in two forms red, looking like blood, and the water. But John records that, I think. Why does that detail strike a chord with John? Because he was well aware of these prophecies of the way that the Messiah's death would lead to a cleansing for God's people. And so seeing the water no doubt triggered that for him, he suddenly thought, this is the cleansing of God's people. The death of Messiah leads to his people being clean. That's why in his letter, his first letter, 1 John 1, verses 7 to 9, he says these words, If anyone says they are without sin, they deceive themselves and the truth is not in them. But if anyone confesses their sin, God is just and faithful to forgive them their sin and to cleanse them from all unrighteousness. Because Jesus' death on the cross is a cleansing death. Where is the fountain of God's forgiveness that washes our sin away? Where is it? At the cross on that day when Jesus dies. The fountain is opened deep and wide. A few months ago, like I'm sure many of you, um, Rebecca and I have been kind of getting into um, different box sets over lockdown as just a way to kind of ease the pressure and relax a bit in the evenings. And so a few months ago, we watched the Chernobyl box set, which is not exactly a relaxing one, but it is compelling. As you kind of get this harrowing but excellent TV series that deals with the nuclear fallout of Chernobyl and the way that that was covered up by the um, regime at the time. But one of the things that just makes you feel so, you know, kind of awkward in the early stages of that TV series is that when the nuclear fallout happens, many of the people didn't know that they had been radioactively contaminated. And because the communist state was suppressing that truth, people were going around contaminated by radiation. And everything they touched or every person they touched led to that contamination being furthered. And so you get these awful scenes where people who worked in the plant go home and they, they hug their family and you know what's going on, that the contamination is infecting them and infecting the family and you're crying out, no, stop. That's just a small picture of the way that sin in our lives, our, our moral failure before our holy God, infects and affects everything around us, our deepest relationships, the ones we love, the society and the community around us. It ruins everything. But then what would it be like if a fountain could be opened up? If you could be cleansed, not on the outside, but on the inside, so that when you went home and you hugged your children and you were with your most loved ones, that the sin wasn't there infecting them anymore, that the relationships were ones of flourishing and liberty and care and protection, as they should be. Oh, what a day that would be. My friend, this is the age of the Spirit. This is the great work of the Spirit as He's been released by the death of Jesus Christ. Now He works in the lives of each believer and of God's people, bringing that cleansing work, dealing with the radiation of sin, cleansing it out bit by bit from every believer, making us more the people we long to be, more the people we should be, more the community we long to be, more the society we long for. Oh, what a day. As the words of the hymn go, he breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. Jesus' death cleanses us from sin. If you trust in Jesus, that work is starting in you in the power of the Spirit and will be completed on that final day. And secondly, as we close, his people are refined. The shepherd is struck to cleanse us and his people are refined. Verse 9, sorry, verse 8, In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds will be struck down and perish, yet one-third will be left. This third I will put into the fire, I will refine them like silver and test them like gold. They will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is our God. Now, it's tough to know exactly when um, this part of this prophecy is fulfilled. Certainly, in some sense, it's already been fulfilled at the time of the exile, because when did two-thirds get carted off into exile? Well, just previously, and there's one-third, this remnant was left in the land, and only a small number of God's people ever returned from exile. But God's point is that actually the exile has, to a degree, accomplished its purpose, which was to chasten God's people so they returned to God. So they're purified from the idols, and as they come back in Zechariah and cry out to God and ask good questions like, how should we pray and how should we fast to you, God, and they have a concern for a restored relationship, it shows that to a degree the exile worked. But of course it needed more. It needed the work of Jesus Christ and the work of the Spirit. But that dynamic of a chastening, of refining, of a remnant of God's people being purified is still the dynamic of how God works today in his church, which is probably why it is where the church is small often, where it is persecuted, that it is most potent. You know where the church is growing most vigorously around the world in places often where the church is on the margins, places like Iran and Afghanistan and Tajikistan, often where Christianity is outlawed, where the church is driven underground, like in China over the last 60, 70 years, where the church has really grown. Because here's this curious reality of the way that God cleanses his people in general and a person in particular. It's often through adversity and hardship. It's in the refiner's fire that we are purified, where in the heat of affliction and difficulty, the dross is skimmed off, and what is left is someone Who's pure. There used to be this couple at a church I used to um, go to, they're very elderly, and they've had a lot of pain and suffering in their lives, but I just loved spending time with them as a young Christian who'd come to faith. Just sitting with them there was a light in their eyes, there was a gentleness, there was a humility, there was a sense of the dynamic of grace and the Spirit in their lives, and it had come about through years of difficulty because God works through difficulty to drive us to the cross, and as we are driven to the cross and we cry out, look what he says in verse 9, they will call on my name. And I don't know if this is a word for you right now, but if you're crying out to God, look at what God says. I will answer them. I will say these are my people. In other words, he won't disown you. Maybe you're going through great difficulty right now, and you don't really need to hear that it's purifying you. You just need to hear that you're going to get through it. Cry out to God. He hears you. He will respond. He loves you. If he gave his son for you, will he not give you all things? Maybe there's a particular sin you're grappling with. Maybe the talk last week on generosity has convicted you and you know you're materialistic and you you aren't generous with your money. Maybe the the problem of pornography is a real problem in your life and you, you feel like you're crying out to God. Well, cry out to him. He will help you. He says, he promises, I will answer them because you're his people. And in time, you will say more and more in that area, the Lord is our God. The Lord is my God over this area as well. Now, you might need to talk to someone as well. Often, sin needs to be brought into the light. Sunlight is the best disinfectant. But cry out to God, talk to someone, and seek help in the church family. Whatever it is you're going through, whatever you're struggling with at the moment, however the Lord is working in your life to refine you, cry out to him, as the words of the hymn put it. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be your supply. The flame will not hurt you, I only design, your dross to consume and your gold to refine." Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your cleansing, purifying work in our lives, how we need that Lord God. We know we're not the people we should be, Lord, we're not even the people we long to be, let alone. The higher standards that you long for us. So Lord, work in us, deep in our inner beings to cleanse us totally, to cleanse us from our idols, and as that works out, might that lead to transformation here in this church community, in our lives, in the wider community, in the wider society, we pray. And we can't do this ourselves, so we rely on the Lord Jesus Christ, his death for us, that cleansing, purifying death and the work of the Spirit through affliction to refine us and purify us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.